God always lines up the scriptures for us like this. Um, Acts 27, you could not ask for a more appropriate, more fitting, and uh, really a more powerful text to be studying here on this eve of Thanksgiving. So if you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up to Acts 27 as we will spend uh, a little while in Acts uh, 27 as we are right at the end of our time together. Uh, We began uh, the book of Acts just a year ago. Here we are coming to an end, um, and it's been a really uh, awesome ride, and we've uh, seen God's goodness on every page, and we're going to see it even more tonight. Uh, So after years of imprisonment and waiting, trials and testimonies, one after another, the Apostle Paul finally is on his way to Rome, an unconventional way, but he is on his way. Uh, this was always the end game. When, when God took him to Jerusalem and when he went to Jerusalem against everybody else's advice, um, the end game of his Jerusalem journey was always to get to Rome. You know, Paul had a heart to share the gospel with the Jews in Judea, uh, his kinsmen, but at the same time, his purpose uh, was to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, and that was to take the gospel to the Gentile kingdom, uh, to the Gentiles, and, and what better place to really kickstart that whole work than the imperial center, the epicenter of the Roman Empire, uh, Rome itself. So Paul's trip to Rome would not be luxurious. He would not uh, walk through the front door with people greeting him. He would not take a, a nice luxury cruise uh, into the one of the finest of docks. No, his, his trip would not be luxurious. It would not be comfortable. Um, he would be taken there as a prisoner on a boat with over 200 other prisoners uh, with uh, dozens of Roman soldiers guarding them. Uh, and on board uh, with Paul, uh, there were a few other people there, servants and people that were being taken uh, for uh, job purposes. Uh, but mostly anybody on the ship was a slave of some kind. Uh, but a stowaway um, was also on board, uh, and that was Paul's most loyal friend across his Gentile missions, and that was Luke the physician turned journalist. Now, if you read Acts, you know that anytime you see the word, the pronoun we, or the, 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 the word we instead of they, uh, those are stories that Luke was a part of. So uh, here on this boat full of prisoners and Roman soldiers, somehow, someway, Luke found a way home. Uh, and that shows the dedication uh, that he uh, had and the commitment uh, to supporting Paul and capturing the angles of the story as he was trying to get all the details of the church in its inception and its, its spread. Um, we know from the, from the book of um, 2 Timothy that Paul says when he is in prison uh, about to be killed uh, for his faith, he tells us that Luke alone is with me. Now, we don't know if that meant Luke was in jail with him or that Luke was the only one that was attending to him. Either way, Luke was the only one that was there by Paul's side to the very end. Uh, All the people that were his companions, for different reasons, some of them fled him because they didn't want to be around him or associated with him. Uh, Some of them just had other things they had going on, but Luke was committed to the Apostle Paul, uh, and Paul was very thankful for that. And we're we're thankful for that because we get to read this uh, awesome chapter um, because Luke saw it with his own eyes. Uh, so Paul would not have to be, uh, would not be recognized as a special passenger on this boat. He was just another prisoner uh, and, and on his way to Rome. Uh, and we know that he didn't have to be on his way to Rome. He didn't have to be a prisoner. Uh, he was given an out uh, several times by the governors and by the people that Rome, uh, you know, the, the different courts that he went through in Jerusalem and Caesarea. Uh, yet Paul insisted he appealed to Caesar, even when they gave him 
clearance, even when they said, hey, you're free. Paul says, no, I want to appeal to Caesar because I want to get to Rome because I know if I get to Rome, I can share the gospel with the right people and make the right amount uh, of impact on the world. So, uh, you know, Paul appealed to the courts of Caesar, which would not really be a good thing to do. Uh, there was no justice uh, primarily in the Roman courts unless you were somebody, uh, unless you had money, and Paul was a nobody and, and didn't have any money. Uh, so Paul wanted to do this against better judgment because he believed that getting to Rome, even if it cost him his life, would kickstart and would uh, ignite something big for the church, and of course it did. So Paul made a perplexing decision one after another throughout his ministry. If you're judging uh, by our standards, you think, man, why would he keep doing this? And why did he go to Jerusalem when they told him it wasn't going to be good? Why did he uh, appeal to Caesar when they said you can go free? Why did he do all this? Why would he be so persistent uh, in what we would think making bad decisions, making bad judgments? But we judge from our flesh and through our eyes. Uh, however, we've learned again and again about the Apostle Paul that he was driven by a different kind of standard. And it, it wasn't about what he was required to do by this world or what people thought he, did, you know, he should do. But he was driven by something deeper in his heart. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, "'What then is my reward?' that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So when he says free of charge, he's saying, I'm not getting paid to do this. Nobody's making me do this. I'm doing this because I'm driven to do this. I went to Jerusalem against you know better judgment because I knew it was going to amount to something for the kingdom of God. I'm going to Rome as a prisoner because I know it's going to amount to something bigger for the kingdom of God. I'm not making use of my right. And what does he mean by that? He means that he's not legally bound to do this, that there's not a commandment saying you've got to do this. Of course, he himself writes the commandment that says we should do this. Paul says in the next verse, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Again, it's remarkable what was driving this man. No doubt, no, no, no question, uh, you know, no wonder the world was changed through his faithfulness. He says in verse 22 of that chapter, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now notice Paul is very honest about it. Not everybody's gonna get saved. He's not gonna win everybody, but Paul believed saving some was worth it. For the sake of the gospel, he would give his life away. You know, everywhere Paul went, he had this attitude. And think about all the places Paul was that he really didn't deserve to be, that he didn't have to be. Many times he found himself in situations that were unfair and unjust. Yet every time he was in prison, every time he faced some kind of opposition and persecution, all of which he was undeserving of, Paul relished at the opportunity to be used by God for something otherwise extraordinary. You know, it's so important that we always lift this up out of the text when we read about Paul and we, we hear these stories uh, because this is where God wants all of us to arrive at our, at our lives and in our lives. God wants, he doesn't want us just to look at Paul and say, wow, I'm glad he's like that. The Bible's calling us to be like this, to take on this mantle, to be anointed like Paul was, to choose this road that Paul chose. This is the work God wants to do in all of our lives, where he 
is using us in ways that we may not expect, but because we believe and we have put our faith in what God can do and, and, and not doubting, even when it doesn't look like it's going to work out in our favor. Paul had an attitude that I think we all can adopt. Paul believed that everything that happens to us produces or includes some gospel-rich opportunity. Now, we've been talking about this. We, we always talk about this as long as I'm preaching. I, I, I think it's my obligation to bring out the sovereignty of God, how God is always working and, and using things and producing things and you know, opening doors for us to, to, to glorify him and to spread the gospel. That's everything's purpose, right? Paul believed and Paul embodied everything that happens to us produces or includes. Now, sometimes the, the thing happened so that we might get this opportunity. Sometimes it just happens, and, and as it's happening, an opportunity shows up as a part of the flow of life, as a part of how things begin to progress. But we can trust that everything that happens to us produces or includes some gospel-rich opportunity, an opportunity that is just saturated for the gospel to be on display. Now, an ounce of selfishness in our hearts, an ounce of our flesh overpowering our spirit will prevent this from even being a thought that comes to our minds, which is why we must hear this word and receive it with prayerfulness and earnest desire that it might change our hearts. And I preface this because when we read about what Paul is going through in this chapter, when we think about what Paul went through in his life, it's just remarkable that he had this attitude in the middle of a mess. This is what Paul said in Philippians chapter one. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, there's the reason why we think it happened and there's the reason why it really happened. Do you follow me there? There's the reason why we think we're in the situation we're in. The reason why we think we're in the problems or facing the troubles that we're facing. And it's their fault and it's not ours and it's just not fair. I understand that. Paul could say, I could tell you the reason why I feel like I'm here, but I've learned the real reason is to advance the gospel. Can you even, can that even you know, register with us? Now, by the way, he's writing this from prison, if you didn't know. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has happened to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole region, the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Again, I mean, we, we ought to just so humbly receive this and process this. Paul says, I am in prison for Jesus to make him known. No, Paul, you're in prison because you live in a, an unjust world and Rome unfairly puts you there. Man, you can say that if you want to. I mean, we can get into the blame game if you want to, guys. I'm in prison, not because Nero Caesar's a bad guy. He is, but that's not why I'm in prison. I'm in prison not because somebody tried to hurt me or someone's against me. Maybe that is why I'm here, but that's really not why I'm here. I'm in prison for Jesus. He says, most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the world without fear. You know what Paul's saying there? Because I'm in prison and I'm not giving up, 
and I'm telling people this is for the glory of God, this is for the advancement of the gospel, other people are starting to wake up to how God works. And oh, if we would wake up the same. Imagine being loaded onto a boat in shackles as a prisoner with this attitude. I know it's not easy when we find ourselves in situations. You could replace by my imprisonment with, other, with some other sort of hardship or some other sort of you know, unfortunate circumstances. We've all had them and we all will have them. Paul was being led on a boat as a prisoner where he would sit shoulder to shoulder with some murderer or some felon of some kind, someone who actually did something bad. He has this attitude. And, and, and we wonder why God did incredible things in his life and why many, uh, very few experience the same incredible things. So I just want that to kind of soak over, our, you, know, l- you know, permeate over our minds as we read this story. Um, we're going to dig into some uh, specific things that we find in this text. Um, there's a bit of iron- there's an ironic exchange that we'll read about in the first 12 verses. So if you would, uh, look at your Bibles, Acts 27. This is how the journey to Rome begins. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So at entering the ship called the ship of Adirit, Adermitium, we put to sea, meaning to sail across the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. And when he had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we sailed over the sea, which is off of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. So again, Luke has given us all the details. So if you wonder if this is, you know, this isn't just a story, this is history. And Luke's given us all the little details. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. So notice how they were on one boat, they stopped somewhere else, they got on another boat. All this seems incidental, but no, Luke believes it's providential, which is why he's telling us all these little details. When we sailed slowly many days, arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salome. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because of the fast, uh, which was a, a Jewish festival, and the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but our lives. Paul says, I'm not a weatherman, but I've got a hunch. That looks like a hurricane. That looks like a tropical storm. The winds are awful. It is not a good time to set sail. And nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the thing spoken by Paul, which is code word for this is a ship full of slaves. If they die, that's just less trouble for Rome when they get there, right? This is a ship full of prisoners. Rome's going to have to put them up and, and, and try them all one by one. If they all die in the ocean, that's really better off. So let's keep on going, which is kind of how they thought. Paul says, this isn't a good idea. The captain of the ship and the centurion get together and think, you know what? you know, what's the risk? 
Because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. So again, they had a lot of different reasons uh, to to keep on going. Uh, But isn't it ironic that this story began back in, uh, back in Ephesus when Paul said, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And a bunch of people said, you should not go there. It's not going to be safe. And Paul says, no, 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 I don't care. I'm going anyway. You're not going to persuade me. And it says there in Acts 21, they could not persuade him. And he went anyway. And look what happened. And now, for different reasons, different circumstances, but now it's Paul saying, doesn't look like it's going to be a good thing for us to set sail. I know I'm just a prisoner of a hundred or so here, but maybe we shouldn't do this. Uh, I, I think this connection should not go unnoticed. Now, in the former, back in Ephesus and with Jerusalem, Paul assured the disciples and the, the friends on his team. He says, yes, I know it's going to be a costly journey, but I've got to go for the sake of the gospel. I've got to go to Jerusalem because I've got to go to Rome. In this instance, there wasn't a rush. They could have waited. But I'm thankful that this story is included because it helps humanize Paul. Because we see Paul as a man who, you know, know, was always moving forward, pushing against any challenge that came his way. I think this helps us relate to him a little bit more. You know, we marvel at how determined he was back in Acts 20, but I think we can relate to his hesitation here. I mean, who wants to go out onto the sea in the middle of a storm? Nobody would do that, right? Now, this shows that Paul was not the type that believed that Christians have got to always be in the middle of some worst case scenario, that unless you're suffering, you're not godly. That's not what, Paul didn't believe that, but I think sometimes we think the way Paul talks and the way he always was, you know, enduring for the sake of the glory of God, we hear him talk about persecution and we think, is it wrong to not want to be in that? And, and, and by no means, you know, nobody wants to suffer. Paul didn't want to suffer. Uh, he didn't want to suffer at the expense of this fallen world, at the expense of other people's foolish decisions. He tried to circumvent that if he could. Here in this instance, he tried to say, let's not go into a storm when we can't avoid it. But nonetheless, his attitude and his mindset was the same even though they did not heed his advice. So Paul's attitude as they go into this storm against the good advice, his attitude as they go into this is the same as his attitude was whenever he was going through something that that God showed him would be for the sake of the gospel. And that's the takeaway I think we should pick up from this text. Whether Paul knew the purpose for the storm or the path it would take him down, he trusted God no matter what. You see, in this instance, Paul himself says, I don't think it's a good idea, but ultimately I don't make the decisions around here, do I? And they went on anyway. And spoiler alert, it doesn't go that well initially. Well, it doesn't end that well either. But Paul did not know the purpose for this storm. Was it God's plan? Was it not? I don't know, but I'm gonna trust God anyway. You see, Paul would have loved to bypass the struggle. He tried to get them to, right? I mean, Paul says, hey, let's not do this. Paul would have loved to bypass the struggle, but he knew no matter what, the Lord would be by his side through it all. This sort of faith can prevent us from losing heart, and it can protect us from bitterness and confrontation that often comes when people don't always, we don't always agree with other people's opinion about what should happen and how we should do things. 
But if we could only remember the words of Jesus in Luke 8, a story that we all know where they go out into the sea and enter a storm, Jesus says, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Now, you know what happens in that chapter. They go into the, the lake and a storm happens and Jesus is asleep and they, ask, they wake him up and say, do you not care that we are dying? But Jesus, he didn't really bring this up, but it's right there in yellow. Didn't I tell you we were going to go across to the other side? Why are you afraid? I mean, I know right now there's a storm, but did not I just tell you or didn't I tell you before? that we're going to go across? I didn't say maybe we'll make it. I said, let us go across to the other side. And when Jesus said that, it's as good as much as done, right? But what this tells us is that when God says this is how it should be, or even when we don't understand what God is up to, but it seems like this is how it's going to work out, and that God's plan has taken us in a direction that we maybe were not comfortable with or did not sign up for this is a question we need to remember given the choice wouldn't you always want to be wherever God is now I know in a vacuum that you know well I don't want God to be in the storm but this isn't about the storm this is about God don't make the storm bigger than God don't make the trial bigger than God it's not it feels bigger, it feels harder and, and, and more harsh to deal with, but given the choice, don't you want to be wherever God is? Of course you do. You see, we can never tell what God is up to. Nobody, I mean nobody, Paul didn't even know, nobody knows for certain what God is up to, what his plans are, what sort of redemption he's working on. None of us can ever tell exactly what God is up to but we can always trust him through whatever is going on. And that's what Paul's attitude was as they went into this storm. He tried to avoid it, but either way, I'm gonna trust God because I don't know what God is doing and I'm confident that if God is putting me on this boat as a prisoner, it's gonna be for his glory. So that's what Paul does in this moment. He doesn't really have another option. He's a prisoner on a ship bound for Rome, and now it's setting sail in the middle of a tropical storm. Verse 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous or a hurricane headwind arose called the Eurocyclodon, which is a nor'easter. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the sisters' sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. All hope was abandoned. But remember, 
There's somebody on the boat that is confident that wherever God is, is the place you want to be. Even if it's in the midst of darkness and a storm-tossed sea. So in this moment, Paul senses the vacuum of hopelessness. And he sees an opportunity to share his faith. Verse 21, but after a long absence from food, then Paul stood up in the midst of them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart for there will be no lost life among you, but only of the ship. Well, how are we going to make it if we don't have a ship? Uh, don't worry. Don't, don't ask questions. Just go with it. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told to me. However... We must run aground on a certain island. Little small detail, the ship's going to crash onto the shore. But don't worry, we're all going to make it there alive. There's three things that stand out about this passage that I want to cover before we close. First up, Paul does not rub his words in their face. Now, Paul could have launched into a sermon about how right he was and wrong they were and how they deserve whatever happens to them for their foolishness. He could have. And if we would be in his shoes, it would be our nature to do that, wouldn't it? I'm right, you're wrong, here's all the reasons I'm right. Why in the world would you not listen to me? I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. But Paul doesn't rub his words in their face. He shares God's word so that they might take heart. Christians, this is so big, and I hope we can learn from this. Let me say this clearly. There is no excuse for any Christian to ever dunk on somebody. Even if you're right and they're wrong, the only reason we may have gotten it right is because God was gracious to us and gave us that wisdom. This takes poise and compassion, but I'll say this, will never be used by God for his greater glory if we are so quick to use fleeting moments to stroke our own ego. You hear me? We will never be used by God for his glory if we seize every little fleeting moment for our own glory. That's why Paul was Paul, right? But oh, if we could be like him. Who could have blamed Paul if he would have went off on him? But again, he was always thinking of the bigger picture, always trusting God and seeking to serve God in the middle of it all. And that leads us to number two. Paul tells us that, that an angel stood by him. So when God shows up in the midst of the storm, how can we possibly question his purpose? I mean, if you just took verse 23 off of, off of the page. Let's just take, say, verse 23 was given to you on a note card and you didn't know the context. Do you want to undo whatever circumstances led to an angel of God standing by your side and making God's presence so real to you that you never, ever, ever could question his purpose? So now that you know the context for it, if God shows up in the storm, how in the world could we ever question his purpose and wonder 
if there's a better option. Paul testifies that in the middle of the storm, God made himself known. And at that point, Paul didn't question it one bit and would go as far to rejoice that the captain did not take his advice. And lastly, in moments like these, God breaks the illusion of worldly comfort in order to maximize our reliance on him and his divine comfort. In moments like these, God breaks the illusion of worldly comfort in order to maximize our reliance on him and the comfort that he gives. Could this be why we face storms? Could this be why storms and struggles and seasons are often good things? Is that not what Paul reveals when he testifies in 2 Corinthians about how the hardships that he faced, he was thankful for them? Because it was in those hardships and because of those that he learned not to take bait of the world and rest on its crumbling foundation, but rather he doubled down his faith on the cornerstone, the solid rock of Jesus Christ. He said in 2 Corinthians famously, and God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will gladly boast all the more of my weaknesses. I am thankful for my weaknesses. That's what that means. Boasting means I am gloating about my weaknesses so that I might have the power of Christ. You see what Paul is doing there? He is thankful for the trials and the troubles and the weaknesses because it's in those trials that he has known God more than anything else. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As in I would not be strong in the Lord if I had not faced this weakness in the world. Paul had some big faith, didn't he? But that's the secret to finding the strength that he had. If we believe that God, if we believe God and believe that it will be exactly as he said it would be, we will come to experience God's grace like never before. And I'll wager we wouldn't trade anything for that experience. And I'd say we'd be thankful for what it took to get us there. The story goes like this, verse 27. Now, when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved or you won't live. And the soldiers cut away the ropes in the skiff and let it fall off so they wouldn't be tempted. And as it was day, as it, as a day was about to dawn, Paul implored them to take food, saying, today is the 14th day. You have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from your head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, were, in all we were about 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship. And threw out the wheat into the sea. 
As day would dawn, it would be their one shot to run the ship ashore. But until then, they would do something pretty incredible. Under Paul's leadership, they have a Thanksgiving meal. It could have been their last meal ever. No one was sure how things would transpire, save Paul's insistence that things would be okay. But don't you see why this storm in this scenario was not in vain? And shouldn't we marvel at Paul's witness in the midst of this when he could have avoided it altogether? Paul led the people in giving thanks to God before he gave them their victory. Do you see that? They have a Thanksgiving feast and celebration and worship service before they get their victory. This meal wasn't to celebrate their arrival on dry ground. It was a meal in the midst of a hurricane in the eye of the storm with the worst part just a few hours away. I know sometimes we resist worship and church activity when our lives are crazy and complicated because we just think it's going to distract us from our problems, but maybe we need that distraction and maybe that distraction really will give us traction and help us gain faith. We might understand and be prepared to endure and press on in the storm. Paul says in verse 35, or it says in verse 35, they gave thanks to God in the middle of the storm. I want you to know this, that there a moment in time wherein God is with you is never a wasted moment. If God is with you, that moment is precious. Even in the midst of a storm, in the eye of the storm, in the calm before the worst part of the storm, it's not a wasted moment. 39, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach, with, with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a, pace, a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. So the ship runs into the, into the sand and begins to burst to pieces. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion wanted to save Paul, kept them from their purpose, and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And I love verse 44. And the rest, some on boards, some on parts of the ship. So it was, they all escaped safely to the land. Some swam, some were holding on for dear life to a board, but they all made it. Just as he said they would. May it not be lost on us that they did not wait to say thank you after they reached the shore. They said thank you before the worst part. To wrap all this up, I know we've been talking about this a lot lately and we've studied Paul's life. Paul embodied and lived a worship first life a worship first life worries not works diligently the best that we can and witnesses faithfully through it all this is what jesus was getting at when he said in matthew 6 seek ye first the kingdom of god seek first means to worship above all put first the kingdom of god 
Our posture before God is a surrender to his plans. Worship first understands all of life in a very simple but powerful way. Worship first sees all life as from God, lives all of life through God, and gives all of life for God. That's how you endure storms like Paul endured. That's the secret. Now, Paul didn't step onto the cargo ship defeated. He didn't panic when they didn't listen to him, but, and that's what led him to lead the people into thanksgiving before they ever got their victory. May we all choose to worship first in every and all circumstance, for this is the will of God. Paul says, I believe God, and I believe it'll be as exactly as he said it, but in, in, we're not gonna wait for that to happen, to worship him. We're gonna believe it's all from him, we're gonna do it through him, and it's gonna be for him. God will never let us down. Even if the ship goes down, he'll go down with us and he'll raise us up with him. If you don't believe that, just read Acts 27 again and again and again until you do. Before we dismiss tonight, perhaps some of you would like to use this moment in the, with the backdrop of this story to testify to how God has been faithful to you. I know he has. Sometimes talking about it, it's a little bit awkward, shy. I, I know we're all like that. I'm like that. But when you start to t tell your story and to connect the dots, it encourages other people to see that God is faithful to them in the same way and has been faithful to them in the same way. I'm thankful for this story that God gives us in his word because even Paul didn't know if it was going to work out at the beginning of the story. Yet he didn't doubt once God said, just trust me.